Doing good. You know, Rob, I want to commend you for your courage up here, man. Uh, you would not catch me singing in public for all the money in the world. Will not happen. Uh, that is what Christian manhood looks like when you take a risk and you step forward in the teeth of uh, fear and nervousness. So um, thank you for leading us this morning and for sharing your song with us. Uh, you're a blessing, and thank you. Um, if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, I want to welcome you, especially. Uh, it's our prayer that you would find a home here, uh, because lots of churches say it, but here is one place that I have found it to be true, that our church really is a family, and we would love to have you be part of our family here, and to find brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and grandfathers and uh, grandmothers uh, among us, uh, because uh, this is a place where you can be loved and be part of a, a family. It's a good place full of people who love Jesus and who are doing their best to serve him and follow him, and we would really hope that you would experience that right along with us, uh, because we get to experience it every week, and so the the joy that we would have with you would be that we would get to share it with other people. Uh, and as we begin this morning, let me uh, just ask you a question. If you knew for sure that you only had a short time left to serve the Lord and to make an impact for eternity, is there anything you would do differently than you are doing today. If you knew, as an example, Jesus is coming back tomorrow, and you don't have all day, you've got to get, you've got to get up, get going, and make hay while the sun shines. Or you knew that you are going to check out of here in six months. You got terminal cancer, whether they give you chemo or whether they don't, you got six months. You got a short time to serve the Lord. Would it change anything that you are currently doing? Would it affect how you invested your time? How you spent your money? Would it affect who you talk to? And who you spent time with? Would it affect your attitude toward your job and your co-workers? Would it affect your entertainment choices? And how you spent time and what you watched on TV? Or whether you watched TV? Would it affect how you viewed your church? And what kind of time and effort you invested there. And I think a lot of us, if we are, are honest with ourselves, would say, well, if I knew that six months from now I was checking out, well, then obviously, yes, it would affect some things in my life. There would be some things I would do differently than I am currently doing. But here's the reality. Time really is short, 
and we do not know how long we have to serve the Lord. My eschatology teaches me that Jesus could come back today. There is nothing left in prophetic uh, scripture which tells me that there's anything in the way of Jesus returning today. And on top of that, I could walk out here to the parking lot and even though it's a relatively clear day, get struck by lightning and die right there. Have a heart attack while I'm preaching this sermon, which actually if you're a preacher, that's a good way to go. Right at the end of your last sermon, boom, have a stroke, that be it, right? Um, that would be fine with me. I'd be good with that. I'm already at church, <laughs> right? Just toss some dirt over me and I'm good with it, right? Um, but we don't know how long we have, but however long it is, even if it's 110 years, it's a short time. It's a short time. My dear bride turns 40 this coming Friday. She's not in here right now, so I can say that. <laughs> Don't tell her I told you. She will beat me up later. Um, I turn 40 later this year. Okay, I've got, she's got three months on me, and I get to rub it in for the next three months. Uh, but we are, we are going to go racing next Saturday, 13 miles, the two of us. We're going to kick 40 in the teeth. Uh, but in any case, I still feel, most of the time, not physically, but internally, I still feel like I'm 18 years old and 10 feet tall and bulletproof. And then I go to the gym and I run, and then I realize I am not only not 10 feet tall, but I am the furthest thing from bulletproof. I creak now when I get up, right? Things are get stiff and sore that never used to get stiff and sore. I can't wrestle around with the boys as much as I used to without them hurting me. They've gotten big enough, and I've gotten old enough, they can hurt me now. I can still whip them, both of them, at the same time. A few years from now, that won't be the case, but I won't tell them when it happens. Um, the thing is, yeah, they may be younger and stronger, but I'll be meaner. Uh, but in any case, the reality of it is, is that I don't know where, in some sense, the last 22 years went, right? It went by fast. I don't know where that what happened over that period of time, but a lot has happened. You know, graduate high school, graduate college, got married, went to seminary. Spent twelve years of my life as a pastor already. I don't know what happened to those years. It's just gone by fast, and it seems like the the. The older I get, the faster it goes. Those of you who are quite a bit older than me can testify. It gets faster. The days sometimes go slow, but the years go quick. And however long we have it is not that long. And I bring all this up because here at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is going to talk to us a lot about looking at all of the choices of your life with eternity in mind. 
because we don't have that long between now and then. However long we have, we might live another 80 years if we're young. We might only have another 60. We might only have another 10. We might only have another six months. We really don't know. But we've got to make our choices with eternity in mind. That, that the time between now and when we stand before Jesus is not long. And Paul's going to talk about a, a couple of different aspects of life that that plays into. This is specifically related to marriage and singleness. But it applies to all of life. So let's look at the text, shall we? This is the, our last week in chapter 7. Beginning in verse 25, 1 Corinthians. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now, this passage is tightly related to the rest of the chapter. Chapter 7 begins with a question. He st Paul starts off, Now concerning the things you wrote about, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And he's looking at all of the various interplay between singleness and marriage and widowhood and all of that. And how does that play into divorce and remarriage and whether or not you should get married in the first place. And all of that is part of the focus. And then once you are married, then how are you to conduct yourselves toward one another? That's all, these are all part of the answers Paul gives in chapter 7. And Paul addresses here at the end of the book, or at the end of the chapter, uh, people who aren't married yet, but who are, to use our terms, engaged. Uh, the, actual, the actual word that's used here in context is the word betrothed, which is more uh, formalized than our engagement process. You know, our engagement process involves a guy going down to the jewelry store, he gets a ring, he gets down on one knee, and says, baby, will you marry me? Will you be Mrs. Horn or Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Robinson or Mrs. J Jones or Mrs. Smith for the rest of your life with me? And she evaluates. Let me see that ring. <laughs> Let me look at it again. <laughs> okay. And she either says yes or no, right? And... Hopefully, if you deeply love this woman, she says yes, and you get married, and you demonstrate your deep love and affection for her for the rest of your life. And she 
respects you and cares for you for the rest of her life. And it's a beautiful thing. But sometimes, obviously, couples get engaged, and then there's a period that elapses over time. Well, in Paul's day, uh, that period was betrothal, and it was a formal contract. There was legal action required to get out of this uh, betrothal. The families would contract with one another, and there was there was a legal document produced, and it was not as simple as, well, just give the ring back and go home and, you know, cry in your decaf coffee. Um, This was a much bigger deal than that. And, And there are folks within the church who are hearing, well, you know, sometimes in some circumstances, at least as in terms of your ability to serve the Lord, Sometimes it would be better that people remain single than that they get married. They'll be more effective. They'll have more energy. uh, They'll have more time to serve the Lord as a single person than they will as a married person. Uh, And so there are people who are betrothed and going, hmm, what about me? Should I go ahead and get married or should I not? And uh, actually, the, the word that's used at the beginning there, now concerning the word actually, instead of betrothed there, the first part reads virgins. Now concerning virgins, but the idea is, as you read from the context, people who are engaged. Um, and it's, it's a, uh, and, and by the way, uh, the word virgins is used because we're talking, first of all, Christian community. And so the assumption is, if you are not married, that you are a virgin. And by the way, speaking as your pastor, let me encourage you who are single, that ought still be the operative assumption within the church of Jesus Christ. That when you get married, you marry a fellow virgin. Hear me on that, please. I am tired honestly, of having people come to me who, who say that they both love Jesus and yet they are living together and sleeping together. I'm tired of that. Because either one or the other is not true. Either you are committed to Jesus and therefore you are celibate and remaining a virgin or you are not committed to Jesus. One or the other. This is the assumption of the Bible, is that those who are not married remain virgin until they are. And then the assumption is, is that you are regularly connecting together. See also earlier in the chapter, chapter 7. Okay? Um, That's not to make anybody who was not a virgin on their wedding day feel badly. Because God is gracious, and God does restore what the locusts have eaten. However, it is to say that this is the expectation and the standard of the Scripture, and it's one we would do well and be blessed if we lived up to. Okay? Understand? All right. Now, Again, Paul is going to bring up in this passage the general principle he has been applying throughout this whole chapter that 
in most cases, a person should remain in the status that they had prior to the time they were Christian. So slavery is the only generalized exception to that. In Paul's day, there were a lot of people who were slaves. And he says, if you can get free from slavery, by all means, get free. If you can't, don't worry about it. Serve the Lord anyway. But otherwise, you ought to, he says, remain in the status that you had. So uh, as far as betrothed people go, Paul says, again, you need to remain as you are. And if you are just freed from a betrothal, that's what he says, are you bound to a wife? The idea there is a different word than married, is that you are already legally connected to this person, even though there has been no marriage ceremony, there has been no consummation, but legally this person is designated as your wife. He says, are you bound to this woman? Don't seek to be freed. Have you been released from a betrothal? Don't go looking for a wife. Stay in the status that you have and serve the Lord in that. And again, verse 28, he says, but if you do get married, if you want to go ahead and pursue a spouse, that's not a sin. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. If you are a woman, it's not a sin to get married. If you're a man, it's not a sin to get married. Marriage is a good state, and it has blessings of its own. But, look at this verse. If you, Those who marry will have worldly troubles. How many of you are married? Raise your hand. How many of you have had an argument with your spouse? Raise your hand. Okay, now, how many have had more than one argument? We won't specify a number. More than one. <laughs> okay. To get married is to have some troubles. Amen? Amen. Okay. And Paul says, look, there are blessings that go along with marriage, and marriage is not a sin. It's a good state. However, there are troubles that go along with it. You know, or to quote Proverbs, where there are no oxen, the barn is clean. But much increase comes from the strength of the ox. Right? Some of you ladies are thinking, yeah, you're right, I married one. Um, but here's the deal. If you want a clean barn, don't have oxen. But if you need to plow your field, oxen are necessary. Right? At least in the context of Proverbs. You're going to have some trade-offs, in other words. That's a biblical principle. If you get married, you're going to have some trade-offs. Yes, you get to spend the rest of your life romancing and enjoying and, and kissing and loving this wonderful person that you have married. But you're going to have some trouble along the way too. And Paul says, look, I would spare you that. And on top of that, and, and he's going to clarify here in verse 29 to 31, there are some things that he's going to clarify for us. He says, look here, time is short. The appointed time has grown very short. And then he says, look here, 
These, marriage is among those things which is temporary, which belongs to this world. I was talking to Karen this week about this passage. She's like, so what are you preaching on this week? And I was telling her. And she, she all of a sudden got real thoughtful. And she said, you know, it's kind of sad when you think about our marriage being temporary. I'm like, yeah, it really kind of is. Some of you are thinking, I'm so glad. <laughs> but honestly, think about this. I mean, I mean, for me, I have a wonderful marriage to a wonderful woman, and we'll be sinless in heaven. So we could really have a great time then, right? Think how imagine how wonderful it would be. But marriage is temporary. It belongs to this life. Look at it. He says, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, those who mourn as though they weren't mourning, those who rejoice as though they weren't rejoicing, those who buy as if they didn't have stuff, those who deal with the world as if they didn't. Don't get confused. Don't misunderstand what Paul is saying. Living in light of eternity does not mean ignore your spouse. Pretend like you're single. Live as if they don't exist. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, is that these are things that belong to this world. And you can't treat them though they are good things. All the things in this list are good things. But you can't devote your life to them. You can't take a good thing and elevate it to the position of an ultimate thing because it's temporary belongs to this life it's not eternal it's not eternal our relationship with Jesus is eternal the service and love that we show to Jesus and to others in this life is eternal that lasts that is, gains for us a reward that we enjoy for eternity and the way that you love and serve your wives, gentlemen, and ladies that you respect and love and care for your husbands, that lasts forever because that gains you a reward before the Lord, and that lasts forever. But the relationship itself and that status of being husband and wife, that's temporary. And we dare not take even very good things that God has given. Like, I really enjoy my truck. As an example, got an 11 year old Nissan pickup truck that kind of rattle around in, and I love it. Pick up mulch in it. If I do any good deer hunting, I can take the deer home in it, process my deer in my kitchen. It's great. Okay, I love that truck because it allows me to do all the things I enjoy. I get to go visit people in the hospital in that truck. I get to have discipleship meetings in that truck as we ride to various places. I get to do a lot of things that I really enjoy. I get to take my kids to Kroger in that truck, right? It's a great truck. I love it. I've helped people move in to their house with that truck. It's, it's great, right? But it's a possession. And it's something that at the end of the day is not going to be here. One day, the world in its present form is going to pass away. 
and nothing of my possession is going to be here. And so I ought not wrap my life around them. Even things that are deeply painful right now and, and would cause someone to mourn are not eternal. And you know, we've lost people out of our church who are with the Lord. And every now and then I think back on them. And the fact that they are not here and I am not with them pains me. Because they are dear people to me. But that's not eternal either. And so you can't live in that Even the great joys of our life, we can't wrap our lives around the pursuit of those kinds of experiences. Because later there will be eternal joy. So you have to live your life in light of eternity because everything around us is passing away. Everything. And we cannot treat good things as if they were ultimate things. Our marriages, if you are married, your marriage is a blessing from God to you. But it's not the best of things. The best of things is your relationship with Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you to make you his bride. And, you're, and ultimately, your life needs to be wrapped up in that. Because that will last forever. I want to look here at the next section here, verses 32 to 35. Paul says, he continues, he specifies some more. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And here's what Paul is saying. Let me just make it really clear. That married people have a harder time than single people with having divided loyalties between serving the Lord and pleasing their spouse. That you as a married person are going to have some amount of time and some amount of energy devoted to that relationship, which you could, if you are wholly devoted to the Lord, be devoting to serving Christ. And by the way, pleasing your spouse is not a bad thing. I recommend it. All right? Happy wife equals happy life. Right? It really does. Those of you who are married know this. Right? You married men, you can say amen anytime you want on that. <laughs> happy Happy wife, happy life. That's not a bad thing. To be devoting time and energy to pleasing your, your spouse. On the other hand, 
all the time and energy that you're devoting to your spouse is time and energy you can't devote to Jesus. And so it's not that it's bad to do the one thing, but it's better to do the other if you have that calling and that privilege. Because earlier we saw, remember, that, that both marriage and singleness are callings. That some people are called to be single, and that's not a bad thing. It's not a second best thing. That's a good thing. And some people are called to be married, and that is also a good thing. But there are advantages. If you can remain single, there are some advantages to that. And one is is that all of your energy and all of your life can very easily be channeled into serving the Lord. If I, as an example, decide to go be a pastor in Papua New Guinea, live among the cannibals in a bamboo hut, I have five very good reasons I have to consider before I make that decision, along with all of you. But primarily, I have to consider Karen, Sarah, Ashley, John, and Nate, and how their life would be affected as well. As a single dude, though, you can just throw all your stuff in your backpack, jump on the airplane, and go. And there's nothing to stand in your way, really. Except maybe if you have trouble getting your visa to get in. But you can go. You can do anything as a single person. You know, I mean, it, most single guys I know, you know, if, if everything in their, that they own was destroyed in a fire, they'd be out like eight bucks. <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and you you can... You know, they, they lose the spool coffee table, you know, the cinder block bookshelves, uh, you know, and some clothes, but that would be it, right? But you have a lot more flexibility. My sister experienced this when she moved to China as a missionary after, after college. She packed up all her stuff and left. It was like, hey, Mom, Dad, we love you. Uh, good to see you. Thanks for college. We're going to go <laughs> serve Jesus in some backwater of China. And it was nothing really that, you know, I mean, it was nice to have everybody's affection and support and help and so forth, but she didn't need anything. You can just go. I feel the calling of the Lord to go be a missionary there. And as a single person, you can do that. As a married person, life gets much more complicated. And life entails some sacrifices. But those, as a single person, you are going to make some sacrifices of that relationship that you could have. But if you make them for an eternal purpose, there are rewards for that as well. And don't hear what Paul is not saying, by the way. Read back earlier in the chapter if you're married and you're thinking, you know, I should just get divorced. Don't do that. That would not honor the Lord and would not serve his purposes for your life. If you're married, don't wish to be single. Serve the Lord in your marriage. But he is saying is that those who aren't married yet have a choice to make. Whether they're going to retain 
full freedom to live an undivided life and serve the Lord wholeheartedly with all their energy and time, or to get married knowing that part of their energy and time is going to go to their spouse that could go to the Lord. And in this last section, Paul clarifies this a little, a little bit further and gets into some practical details. He says, if anyone thinks he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. Now, um, here he, Paul addresses the man primarily because culturally speaking, it was men who pursued betrothal and then marriage. But this applies to both sexes. And he tells Christian men to honestly evaluate themselves and their circumstances. And he says, look here, guys. I'm not going to be graphic, but this is what he's saying. When he says, if your desires are strong, he's talking about your level of sexual passion. And if that is high... It would not be good for you to remain single. Find a wife. That would be best for you. But if, on the other hand, you are one of the men who has a lower level of desire and you are, are highly self-controlled with that, then you might consider remaining single because you would have the opportunity to serve the Lord better as a single person than as a married man. Uh, here's the thing. Um, passion is not a bad thing. God gives that uh, to encourage romance and connection. See, the way this works, generally speaking, in a marriage is this, is that generally speaking, now this is not always the case, but generally speaking, Men have a higher desire level than their wives, and that drives them toward romance, toward pursuing their wife, toward bringing home flowers, toward candy, jewelry, clothes, romance, pursuit. Let's get away for the weekend, babe. Let's, let's uh, as Song of Solomon says, go out into the countryside and see if the flowers are in bloom. Right? Poetry, passion, it's all a good thing. And he has designed most women to respond to their husband's romantic efforts in a passionate way in response. And so both couples, I mean, both sides of the couple connect emotionally, physically, relationally, 
That's good, right? It's a good thing. But you've got to consider your level of passion. Yours is high, get married. Yours is low, that's not a bad thing necessarily. In fact, it might be something that would encourage you to stay single and devote all your energy and time to serving Jesus. Uh, and on top of that, he says, look here, if, you, if it's not a necessity that you get married, uh, if you've determined it in your own heart, um, then you do better from an eternal perspective than you would if you got married. But God would not have you necessarily be frustrated going, oh my gosh, what do I do with all the all of the desire that I have within my body? What do I do with that? Well, God says, get married. Enjoy that in the context of your marriage. But on the other hand, if you're under if you've got if you've got things just totally under control and everything's fine, then stay single and serve the Lord. And then he addresses here at the end widows. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. In other words, don't get divorced, stay married. Uh, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whomever she wishes. And then look at this only in the Lord. In other words, she is to marry a person that meets two qualifications. Well, three. I'll make sure I specify for the culture we're in. The idea biblically, the assumption biblically, is that the person you marry is opposite sex. It's, it's explicitly stated in several places, but it's assumed in a wider number, and it's assumed here, an opposite sex person. And in addition to that, whoever you want. You know, ideally, they also like you, but whoever you want who is not married. Right? So, the, the, you know, people say, well, who is it God's will that I should marry? Someone of the opposite sex that you like. It's profound, I know. And then third qualification, in the Lord. In the Lord. In other words, this person needs to be a believer. A God-fearing, Jesus-loving, Christ-exalting person. And again, I am so tired of this. Because God love you. Some of you girls are content to marry somebody who is more or less sort of kind of in, a, in, a, in some way, you know, calls himself a Christian. Don't do that. God love you. Don't do that. Don't marry somebody that you have to kick in the rear to get to take you to church. Do not do that. You will be miserable. He will be miserable. Don't do that to yourself. Marry somebody who it is obvious knows Jesus. It will be much, much, much better for everybody concerned. Evangelistic marriages are not a good concept. Marry somebody who loves Jesus more than he loves you, and you will have a great time. 
marry in the Lord. Don't marry somebody who is obviously not exalt, exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit in their life. Marry somebody who, whose Christian testimony and whose Christian life is consistent and who loves you. You will be far happier than with any of the alternatives. If you're a widow, you have new opportunities to serve Jesus. On the other hand, if you want to get married, that's okay too. And Paul says, you know, I speak as someone who also has the Spirit of God. He said earlier, you know, I give an opinion as one who, by God's mercy, is trustworthy. He's saying, look, this is my apostolic opinion on this. This is me, filled with the Spirit, writing God-inspired truth to you. He didn't have teaching of Jesus from the Gospels to fall back on, and so he is asserting his own authority as an apostle to speak to these issues. And because of that, because it is inspired by God, it is therefore authoritative for us. So, that's where the rubber meets the road. I know not many of us are engaged at this point. Uh, it's likely that not many of the people in the Corinthian church in Paul's day were engaged either this is probably a smaller gathering of people paul is writing to than are in this room right now you know we we think of sometimes these new testament churches as these huge places but most of these churches that paul founded are these little mission outposts maybe 40 50 people but here's the thing the text speaks to all of us whether we're engaged, whether we're married, whether we're single, whether we're a child in our parents' home. The text speaks to all of us because, as Paul says here in this section, the world in its present form is passing away. And even the very best of things of this world, like marriage, are not eternal our possessions, our jobs, our marriages, our times of rejoicing and mourning, the interactions we have in the world, you know, whether we're a person of high status or low status socially, whether we're a person of great power and influence, whether we're someone that no one will know our name apart from our family and church. All of those things are passing away, and the present order of the world is going to be overturned one day. And there's going to be a world in which righteousness dwells, in which faith becomes sight, in which hope becomes present, and joy becomes eternal. And it's tough to remember that day to day. It is. It's tough to remember day to day through the struggles of daily life as you go to your job that's a challenge to work for that boss that's a jerk to make money that is inadequate. It is tough to remember these things, that this is not eternal. It's tough when you go home to a house that needs fixed and a yard that needs mowed and children that need raised and wives and husbands that are sometimes difficult and challenging 
that none of this stuff is eternal except for the people and their relationship with Jesus and with one another, that will go on into eternity. We will know one another and we will be related to one another and we will be family around the family as part of the family of God together. But the way that we work with one another now is not going to last. And the eternal things are coming, but we live in, as C.S. Lewis said it, in the shadowlands. The real things have not arrived yet, and we need to live our lives and make our decisions, even big decisions, life-altering decisions, like whether or not to get married in light of the fact that this world is passing away. And we don't have all day to serve Jesus. That's what my dad used to tell me. Son, you need to get this done, and you do not have all day. <laughs> right? Because i got other stuff I need you to do when this is done. You do not have all day. And you don't have your entire life necessarily to serve the Lord. A lot of us are going to get sick at some point and been able to, to do very much other than have tubes running in and out of our bodies. And it's going to be tough to do much other than read the Scriptures or have it even read to you and pray at that point. You don't know how long you have. And I want to be very careful here because I, I don't want to, to be in the process of exhorting you and replace the gospel of Jesus with moralism. You know what moralism is? It's this list of do's and don'ts that, well, if you do this, then God loves you. And if you don't do that, then God loves you. And you should do the do's and don't do the don'ts, and then God will be pleased and your life will be good. No. Okay? That's not the Christian life. Yes, there are moral expectations. Yes, there are expectations in terms of how you will serve the Lord. But we do this out of just tremendous love and appreciation for the Savior who laid down His life that we might be saved. So when I'm giving specific application like this, don't hear me saying, well, just do this and don't do that and do that and don't do this. Don't hear me saying that. I'm saying, yes, sacrifice for Jesus. Yes, flee from sin and pursue righteousness. By all means, do that. But do that out of love for the Savior. And because it is worth it. You know, when I was in college, there were several different girls that I took out. There was one that I married. And there, I have never looked back on that decision and thought, you know, look at all the things I sacrificed. Wind up with her, you know. No, I've never had that thought. You know why? Because my love for this woman is so intense and lovely. And she is so delightful to be with that the thought of everything I gave up never enters my mind. And in the same way, our love for Jesus, though it's not romantic, ought to be such that the things that we give up in order to serve and love and devote ourselves to him ought never enter our 
fine. We ought to pursue the Lord at full stretch, like a guy coming down the track on the last turn. I don't know if you've ever seen high-speed photography, where they catch those guys in mid in mid-flight, you know, and you can see every sinew and muscle and bone in their leg and in their chest as they're stretched out as hard as they can go. Now, I don't have a body like that. Amen? My legs are getting to be in, in, in fairly good shape, but I, ha- I still have a person who likes to eat tum-tum, you know? And, uh, and so I don't look like that. But nevertheless, that is the image that I want of my life as I cross the finish line. I don't know when that's going to be. 70, 80, 90? 42? I have no idea. But I want my life to have every ounce of energy poured into serving Jesus for as long as it lasts. Because however long it lasts, it's not that long. Amen? And I want that for you and for us as a church. That would be our attitude. The time is short. We've got to make hay while the sun shines. Amen? Pray. God, our Heavenly Father, one of the greatest things we could ever really know in our heart of hearts is that you have given us this life to spend, but it isn't a long life, however long it is. And Father, I pray that we would Give our lives. Pour them out like an offering to you. That we would, as Paul says elsewhere, make our bodies living sacrifices. That we would be willing to consider even major sacrifices of time and energy and even of potential relationships like marriage. That we would be willing to forego them Not so everybody could see us as a martyr, but so that Jesus Christ could be better served and better exalted and better worshipped and better pursued and better loved by all who made that kind of a choice. Father, may we never look back at our former life and what we gave up. May we love you so much that we see clearly all that we have Father, I pray that you would be exalted by every bit of our life and we would live every part of it in light of eternity. The fact that the present world is passing away and we with it. Father, I pray we would serve you strongly and purely and with all of our life and energy. Jesus.